The classic Western scene is a town in turmoil under the thumb of some self-appointed gunslinger. It's easy to tell who the bad guys are. They're practically in uniform, right? They move through town making demands, knocking people down, shooting bullets wherever they go. But then the white hats ride into view. And after a flurry of action, when the smoke settles, the good guys are the ones left standing. The town has been liberated thanks to the kindness and sacrifice of those who are willing to do what's right, even for strangers. Now, spiritually speaking, a similar scene was brewing in Antioch. A hostile band of marauders had come into town demanding that all the Gentile believers bow their knees to the legalism of the Mosaic law. In Jerusalem, the issue had been solved, and now a posse was being sent to free the beleaguered faithful in Gentile territory. There would be no shots fired, no violent showdown at the corral. Instead, there would just be the public reading of a letter, but that would be enough to break the blockade that was holding the Gentiles hostage. Now, as students of God's Word, the Jerusalem Council is a big deal to us. It's a big deal doctrinally. It's a big deal legally. Especially as Gentiles here tonight, it clarifies for us the necessary content of our faith and our legal relationship to Jesus Christ. Those are issues that really matter. You're a Gentile here. I'm guessing almost everyone, if not everyone, is a Gentile here tonight. So it's a very important question. What is the content of our faith that is required? And what is going to be our legal relationship to Jesus Christ? It gives the answer to the question, who may climb the mountain of the Lord in a New Testament sense? That's a famous line from the Psalms. And it's a question we need to ask of ourselves uh, in this day and age as well. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? And the Jerusalem Council solved that issue. But in the moment when this was all happening, this was much more than just an issue of doctrine, just a legal decision. It wasn't just a sterile thing. This was a personal thing. This was a family concern in the church. There was more at stake than simply who needed to be circumcised and what else they needed to do. The challenge to grace threatened to disown and disinherit many brothers and sisters from the family of God, huge numbers of them, in fact. The apostles and the Holy Spirit were focused on repairing this breach and drawing together all the members of the family in bonds of love. And tonight, with the delivery of the good news of grace to the Gentiles in Syria and beyond, we will see our text again and again mention the term brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Your translation might just have the word brethren there, but eight times, in fact, in our text, we're going to see brothers and sisters. And the result of all of that familial concern is a stronger church, a joy-filled church, a church that doesn't divide but that rallies in love and then moves forward together in the leading of the Spirit. So we begin in verse 22, picking up where we left off, and we see, then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the believers, sorry, among the brothers. In the first half of the chapter, we saw a dramatic meeting, or it might have been a series of meetings, where it was decided that Gentiles did not have to follow the Mosaic law in order to be Christians. This was being taught in Antioch by some Christians who had come up from Jerusalem. 
And that was the opinion of a group of Christians we saw in Jerusalem who were known as the party of the Pharisees. They said, oh yeah, by the way, we also think this, and this is our group, and this is our pet project that we've been working on. But God had done a great thing here, something that is maybe one of the hardest things ever. He had effected change in the hearts of human beings. Uh, not that he forced them to, but the Holy Spirit operated on willing hearts and hearts were changed. What an amazing thing. Verse 22, it's important. It, it doesn't say it was just the 11 making some unilateral decision to smooth things over. It's not the 12 anymore. James is dead. It's only the 11 now. So it wasn't just the, the 11. Well, we're deciding for everyone. It wasn't just the apostles and a few elders. It wasn't just 50% plus one. This was the heart of the whole church, we're told, including, it seems, those in the party of the Pharisees. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Now, as we've noted and will continue to note, this Judaizing issue would plague the church for a long time, especially the ministry of Paul. But here we see God's people unified around grace. People who went uh, into the ring saying, hey, we are going to fight to say that all Gentiles must become Jews. They, they showed up to fight it out. And Paul and Barnabas and these other guys showed up to fight out on the part of grace. But they showed up for this fight. There was a, a big contention. And in the end, the Holy Spirit worked on hearts. And even the party of the Pharisees said, you know what? These guys are right. Now, whether they sort of slipped back into legalism, some of them, or other people took up the call of legalism, and there's always legalists in every era of the church. We still have them today. We talked a lot about that last time. But what a beautiful, wonderful thing. Look at what God can do. God actually can change the heart of someone you disagree completely with on Facebook. That family member where you're like, which one of us is adopted? Like, what? <laughs> Like, what happened? Something's not quite, you know, something, I feel like we don't share the same genetics, right, in our mindset and our ideology. God can actually change hearts, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, can your mind be changed? Can my mind be changed? There are a lot of issues being discussed today, right? Important issues, uh, emotional issues, a lot going on. A lot of assertions being made about society and about life and about what you should think, about what you should do, and about the way that we organize, all kinds of things being discussed. There's lots of philosophies being submitted to you day in and day out on every medium, whether it's print or over the air or on the television. We're just bombarded, right? Opinions being broadcast to you. Of course, some of those ideas aren't worth our time at all. But, you know, we should be humble enough to acknowledge that none of us has perfect understanding, right? I mean, if we, if we just pause for a minute and say, I don't know everything about, and then fill in any category. I don't know everything about X, right? We know that's true when it comes to theoretical physics or higher math. Maybe there's a theoretical physicist in here tonight. If you are, we'd love to talk to you. Maybe you can explain relativity to me because I don't get it, right? Or higher math, or, or, you know, maybe physiology, the systems of the body. But the average one of us, when it comes to some of these, you know, concepts, we're like, yeah, I don't know anything about theoretical physics. That's me talking, right? But since we're not God, it's also going to be true that we don't know everything about other matters that we live and swim in. Things like politics, or ethics, or human relationships, 
right? These are realms that we live in and therefore we need wisdom in. It's easy for me to say, I don't need to know anything about theoretical physics. And in some sense, that's true. I do need to know a lot about human relationships. But if I approach life with the mindset, with the default base mindset that I know everything I need to know about how to relate with people different than me, I know everything I need to know about people who disagree with me on even important issues. I know everything I need to know about politics or I know everything I need to know about ethics or all of these different things. We're gonna hit some real serious problems, the kinds of problems that we see erupting all over our nation day in and day out right now. We find the wisdom that we need in the scriptures and by having the mind of Christ operating in us. Uh, What an uh, interesting and plain statement that Paul says to us. He says, let that mind of Christ be in you. And that's such a straightforward thing to say, but so hard for us to try to wrap our thoughts around. Now, this is offered to us, a higher way of thinking, a spiritual perspective on life, not just on the afterlife, but on all of life. And the Bible says, let this mind be in you. When it comes to human relationships, when it comes to the situations in your life, let the mind of Christ be in you and operate and take over your perspective and take over your mindset. And not one of us has has got that working at full capacity yet in any of these ways. And it's just good for us to recognize that sometimes even very religious people who care very much and who love the Lord and who are searching out his word, sometimes our minds are going to need to be changed about certain things, not according to popularity or not according to culture or not according to, you know, these other human traditions or human philosophies, but by the word of God and by the spirit of God who comes and reveals himself to us. Sometimes God needs to change our minds not by convenience, not by culture, but by his undying truth. And what an admirable thing it is that the party of the Pharisees stood in agreement. They stood up behind this letter that was going to be written, not in anger or resentment, but with grace. In other words, what we see here was not a partisan solution to the partisan problem. It was the spiritual solution guided by God. And these people who are in the party of the Pharisees apparently said, okay, we lay down our weapons on this issue and we lay down our categorization of ourselves and we join together in the whole of the church, together unified in love and grace. The church in Jerusalem recognized the seriousness of this issue. They didn't treat it casually. They sent leaders to go and speak to these Gentile brothers in Antioch and then wider into Syria and elsewhere. Why wouldn't the letter be enough? Isn't it enough to send, you know, a certified letter? Well, for one thing, they didn't want it to be a situation where the legalists left in Antioch or those individual Christians who maybe were convinced by the legalist teaching in Antioch, they don't want them to be able to say, well, Paul and Barnabas probably just made this all up. They're pulling a fast one. But I'd say because this wasn't just a legal issue, it was a family issue, right? This is why they wanted to send leaders. This is why they wanted to send revered men, trusted men. To me, it, it feels a lot like when, you know, the kid falls off the bicycle and is all banged up, the dad rushes over, right? To, to help and to scoop up and let's, let's help these hurting kids who aren't quite sure what to do. Had the wind knocked out of them when some people showed up and said, by the way, you're not even a Christian, you're not keeping the Mosaic law. 
And so I see just some familial compassion and love here as they say, hey, send some guys that are gonna go and, and be able to give the kind of comfort that the Gentiles up there are gonna need. Verse 23, they wrote from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. The letter opens not from the Jews to the Gentiles, but from your brothers to you, our brothers. That's a beautiful thing. You know, we call it the United States of America, but with a few exceptions, there's really not a lot of unity going on among the people of our nation, historically speaking. Uh, part of that is because we enjoy such freedom in America, freedom of speech and freedom of thought and those sorts of things. But if you look at our history, it's always been lots of different kinds of divisions, right? Whether it, it's one, you know, party or whether it's a philosophy or whether it's, you know, the way things are done. And of course, there are times of great distress in our country, like war times, or we think of the unity after September 11th, where there is a joining together for a time under that national identity. But Really, our default position is one of division, right? One of difference, one of categorization of there's you guys and then there's us and which side are you on? Just take a car with California plates up to Oregon or Idaho and I can prove it to you. I drove to Montana one time about 13 years ago. It was a rental and I thought, I'm going out of state, I should get the insurance. Thank you, Lord, because I drove into Idaho and uh, when I came out in the morning from the hotel, the car was keyed all over, keyed, 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 California plates. And uh, I, I don't think I'm a real rude driver. I don't think it was like a road rage thing where I'd cut somebody off and then they tailed me for 100 miles or anything like that. And we went into restaurants and I guess we stuck out and people glared at us. We went in, when we were in Montana, we went into a supermarket. It's like a local supermarket. And they say, you know, are you part of our, you know, club or whatever? And no, well, it'll be a discount. No, it's okay. Well, why don't you sign up? I said, hey, we're from out of town. You're from California, aren't you? And they said something kind of derogatory to us. And I thought, I'm just, I just, I just want a Coke. Like, is this so bad? You've already destroyed my car. I'm already afraid for my life. Can I just have a Coke, right? Uh, or think of the TV trope that we've seen so many times. The southern country bumpkin up in the big city, they don't know how to fit in. They've never seen a subway before, right? And there is this sort of mentality in our culture. There's these people and there's those people. And it's all kind of split up and uh, divided. And today we live in a dangerously divided nation. The Associated Press has a specially designed set of web pages right now dedicated to a series of multimedia pieces discussing how Americans are more divided than ever. It's what it's all about. On the front page, it reads this. It's no longer just Republican versus Democrat or liberal versus conservative. It's the 1% versus the 99%, rural versus urban, white men against the world, climate doubters clash with believers, bathrooms have become battlefields, borders are battle lines, sex and race, faith and ethnicity, the melting pot seems to be boiling over. And that's true, right? We look around at the world around us and that is 100% true. And it's very sad. It's a sad state of affairs. What are we to do about it? People are wondering what to do, how to move forward. We've got the antidote to division. It's been proven. We don't have to wait for clinical trials. It's ready to go. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of grace. This is the solution that can bridge the impossible gap the impossible divide between Jew and Gentile. 
There is no greater divide, historically speaking, from this perspective than the divide between Jew and Gentile, between tax collector and zealot, right? Both those guys were brought together in the 12, between Pharisee and centurion. It's demonstrated right here in verse 23. Notice they didn't say, we're writing to you, brother and sister, Gentiles up in Antioch. They said, we're writing to you, our brothers and sisters who are among the Gentiles up there in Antioch. You know, their passport still said Syrian if they were going through customs, but in the minds of the believers in Jerusalem, they were all citizens of heaven together. We're all citizens of the kingdom together. And there, you guys are up there. You're living among the Gentiles. We're down here living among the Jews, but together we are all Christians. We're all living in a, a, a fellowship of love and a bond of unity under the banner of Jesus Christ because we're all adopted siblings in the family of God. And that adoption is meant to and able to break down all barriers between us. Now, of course, we're going to come together, whether it's the church at large or a local church, of course, we're going to come together from different backgrounds and with different heritage and different all sorts of variety. But each and all of us are made new by the blood of Jesus, who, brought us, who bought us and made us his own. And now he knits us together as living stones that fit together just so. I don't know if you've ever done any sort of building, uh, whether it's masonry or any of that sort of thing, or let's say you just like to play Tetris. When God is building his church, he doesn't just drop all the pieces down and they don't really, you know, if you're familiar with Tetris, that great old video game, you know, you have these different shaped pieces, but they can all fit together if a designer can come along and say, oh, well, this is how this piece fits. And look at this piece. If I join that piece to this piece, now we've got a block. And if I bring these over here, I got to turn this one upside down a little bit and slide it in. This is the kind of work that God is doing with our great variety and our great differences in the local church and the church universal as he knits us together, as he shaves off rough edges, as he brings us as living stones and says, yeah, you guys are gonna be put together. It's not like he has one brick and one boulder and is just trying to mash them together. God does a work to fashion them and to carve us and to knit us and to mortar us to one another. And he's able to do it because of the power of God and because of grace and because of all that he does to transform a life. Scholars point out that when they say greetings, it literally means we wish you joy. I love that. If we want to move forward together, we've got to lay down our desire to win arguments or be right in an argument and first wish joy and rejoicing for the family of God, right? Do we wish joy and rejoicing for people um, more than we want to feel like we won an argument? Nobody loves to win an argument more than I do, right? I just, I just love it. It feeds me. But that's not a good thing. I need, to, I need to learn and allow God to do that work of saying, no, what's more important is that you are knit together to a person, not that you conquered their arguments. Verse 24 says, since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. In the church, heart health matters. The apostles weren't just worried about how to get more people in attendance, more bodies in the seats. They wanted a heart healthy church. 
and they wanted them to know that they had not been part of sending these legalists up to Antioch, no matter what they had claimed. No doubt they had claimed, oh, we're very official. We're very important. We come from James and the apostles. And they said, yeah, no, no, they don't. We didn't send these guys. It's very easy in our culture, in our day and age, uh, for people to self-authorize, right? The power of the internet. Anyone with a laptop or a phone can set themselves up as an authority from God. So just be careful. Because like these folks mentioned in verse 24, a lot of people out there are not on a mission to build you up in your spiritual life, but to turn you upside down. Uh, That's the term used there for unsettled your hearts. It's also a term that means to plunder someone. They said, hey, these people came up here, they weren't authorized by us, and they came there to plunder you, to take the furniture of your life out, of your spiritual life, take it and, and, and claim it for themselves. Watch out for self-sent teachers. Watch out for self-authorized influencers or whatever they want to call themselves. Watch out for those who seek to do ministry with no accountability. That's not how God does things in the church. Verse 25, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul. Again, we see remarkable spiritual unity and we see tenderness. Our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, that's a sweet thing to say. But we should also note that loving unity is not the same as just saying, well, live and let live. The truth doesn't really matter. We can kind of fudge the numbers on what, you know, what the Bible really says because, you know, just, you know, don't make waves, live and let live. That's not the same thing. The whole purpose of this letter and this mission was to conclusively establish that grace plus nothing was the rule of the day and would continue to be the rule of the day. There was no wiggle room. There was no retreat from the truth. And so as the Bible is consistent in saying, we speak the truth in love. And both of those things can and must coexist together if we wanna be healthy servants and healthy church members. Verse 26, Paul and Barnabas have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Poole points out that Paul and Barnabas had been vilified by the Judaizers in their home church at Antioch. And here the brothers from Jerusalem took it on themselves to stand up for them. They said, hey, we will go to bat for you. We will stand behind you and and help out where you have been libeled and slandered and all sorts of things have been said about you. One of the Puritans once wrote about the work of grace, replenishing every void made by sin. Sin creates voids, it destroys, it leaves craters because sins are like missiles that come down and just destroys and burns things. And the work of grace is to come in and to replenish every void made by sin. I like that image. As Christians, we have the privilege of standing in support of those who are wrongly reviled. Multiple times in the Bible, uh, we're told about how we can strengthen those with weak knees, how we come alongside brothers and sisters who are weakened or feeble in all sorts of different ways and strengthen them, help them up, walk alongside them. And this is one of those situations, not that Paul and Barnabas were weak, but their reputation had been attacked and savaged by these unauthorized gunslingers up in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas had many vile things said about them during this whole scene, but this much was certain. They had counted their lives as forfeit in their service to the Lord. Legalists can't claim that. Uh, They can only try to delegitimize the people around them, knocking them down so that they feel higher, right? 
these guys who were coming up to savage, believing Gentiles in Antioch, they couldn't say, and by the way, I was caned for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I was stoned because I was trying to tell people how they could be set free from their sin. They just showed up and said, we're Christians, we're very important, you're not a Christian. If you wanna be as important as us, you have to do what we say you have to do. Really, really big difference. This description of Paul here reminds us that he never wanted to be known as the most important guy or the smartest guy in the room. In fact, even though God saw fit to show him incredible mysteries and revelation and deliver so much of the teaching of the New Testament, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he and Barnabas lived for Christ's purposes. They forfeited their lives and they didn't look for their own way. And we want to follow in those footsteps. Verse 27, therefore we have sent Judas and Silas who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. A big decision was coming down. Jerusalem was providing verification. And you know, it's okay to do a background check on someone who claims to be speaking for God. In fact, it's an essential thing. Lots of people claim to be speaking for God. Uh, Take a look behind the curtain and see if they're Oz the Great and Powerful or if they're really sent by the Lord. Now, wouldn't the letter and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their hearts be enough? Sure, it could have been, but here we see another example of how God just wants to include people in his work. He didn't need Judas and Silas in order to get this job done, but he delights in utilizing us for all sorts of different missions. We often think of of a mission or a missions trip in a purely evangelistic sense, as an evangelistic activity, and often that, that is the case. Uh, But we should know it in the book of Acts, there are a lot of different kinds of missions trips that God sent his people out on. Uh, He sent these guys in this situation not to go and evangelize. He sent them to endorse and to encourage. He sent Stephen to engage the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. He sent Philip to evangelize in Samaria, but then he sent Philip to explain a message of scripture to the Ethiopian eunuch. From the get-go, God told Paul that he would be sending him on an ongoing mission to endure the suffering for Christ. So lots of different styles of missions that the Lord sends his people out on, uh, on any given day. And so we want to be ready as servants who want to be used. We want to be ready to report for duty and then execute the orders given to us. Verse 28, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. The Holy Spirit has an opinion. The Holy Spirit has an opinion uh, in the situations of this world and in your life, in the decisions you're facing, the tensions you're facing, facing, the trials and the hurts, the circumstances, the questions. God, the Holy Spirit, has an opinion about all of that. The key to successful Christian living and therefore successful ministry is discerning the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because what we see is that sometimes he says yes to things and sometimes he says no to things. Sometimes he says go to the city of Samaria and then sometimes he says go sit by the desert road, right? Uh, And so the question then is, well, isn't the word on its own enough? Just the word. Doesn't it contain all we need for life and godliness? It does contain what we need for life and godliness. But if there was no need for the daily uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit, 
in our lives, the daily filling, the daily leading and intervention of the Holy Spirit, then he wouldn't have been left here to help us after the ascension of Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do we hear from the Holy Spirit since this is so essential? Chiefly, he speaks to us through the inspired word. He's the one that inspired the word. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit is always gonna agree with the book that he inspired. And he's always going to um, point us toward Jesus Christ. But there are some other ways in the New Testament that we learn about how the Holy Spirit interacts with us as individuals and as a church. Here's a few, as time allows. Hebrews 3, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so we are told that today the Holy Spirit speaks. Of course, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the, the word of God, your Bible, is a direct line to the leading of God, the Holy Spirit. However, we're also told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the spirit is active day in and day out in gifting us in certain ways to build up the church. We're told he distributes certain gifts and attributes and that we are to search those out so that we can be walking in step with the Lord. And so Paul explains the spirit leads you in what God wants you to be doing by gifting you in certain ways. How do I figure out my gifting? Well, you figure out your gifting by being a part of a local Bible teaching fellowship and the Holy Spirit reveals those things to you as you serve. But when Paul talks to us about how God has has set apart good works for us to discover and walk in, a lot of those things are discovered as we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and show us where our gifting is. Of course, in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit doing all sorts of leading in all sorts of different ways, uh, in wonderful ways. And so really wonderful things. And so uh, we're also told in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have been given the Spirit individually so that we can have the mind of Christ in us and be instructed by it, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God, the Bible says. And so obviously we have to have personal communion and connection in our minds with the Holy Spirit through prayer, through waiting on him, and through, uh, uh, through those regular activities of the Christian life. Paul also writes about how God works in our own hearts to develop godly desires to do what pleases God. Right, So one of the operations of the Holy Spirit in your life as well is to develop godly desires, or sometimes we say put certain burdens on your heart for certain people or certain ministries or certain situations. Those godly desires that the, the Lord works in your heart, God the Holy Spirit works in your heart so that you can learn to please God. Uh, that's what we are told by Paul as well. And so... Uh, these are some of the ways that we hear from and are led by God, the Holy Spirit. None of those other things that I just referenced will ever contradict or run perpendicular to the teaching of Scripture. But if there was no personal daily interaction of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives, apart from the reading of Scripture, what would he be here for? Instead, Scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit wants to have an interactive uh, uh, ministry in your life day in and day out. Now, the leaders in Jerusalem said that the list that followed were requirements, but wait a minute, aren't we saved by grace through faith, not of works? Yes, we dealt with this last time. Suffice it to say, aside from the clear-cut issue of sexual immorality, 
There were some other dietary issues that needed to be addressed in order to promote the communion and community of Gentile and Jewish believers together. Remember, this is a family issue. While the New Testament would go on to reveal that we have theological liberty when it comes to what we eat, we also have a duty as Christians to not stumble those around us. And that high goal of love and unity should lead us to living sacrificial lives toward others. Paul, who talks to us about liberty and says, hey, you want to eat meat sacrificed to idols and you have liberty to do so, go for it, unless that's going to stumble somebody. And in this case, as they're writing this letter, they're saying to these people, hey, you rub elbows with Jewish believers nonstop. Therefore, this is what we are requiring in this situation. Charles Ellicott writes this concerning these requirements. An inspired commandment does not necessarily involve a permanent obligation. And we know that's true because they're going to say, hey, there's certain things you, you know, meet, we have some dietary rules for you. And then Paul comes along and to a different audience and to the wider Gentile world says, hey, listen, there is an issue of liberty. Love always trumps liberty. Stumbling others is always more important than what you want to do, but you have liberty in these dietary issues. Verse 29, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood and from eating anything that has been strangled and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. The heathens of the Roman world drank blood mixed with wine during their sacrifices to deities. The heathens of the Roman world did all kinds of weird sexual fornication. Uh, They were doing all sorts of stuff that they didn't know they weren't supposed to be doing. And so much of Christianity would have been totally new and foreign to these pagans out in the Gentile world. They don't live in the United States, saturated with the word of God and with a Judeo-Christian heritage. These are pagans, straight up pagan weirdos, right? Drinking blood to, to their gods. <laughs> like, and now we do note this, that the leaders in Jerusalem did not say, and we'll be checking up on you to make sure you're complying with what we said. No, the Christian life is your personal responsibility. You are gonna stand before God alone and must answer whether you obeyed him or not. Now, we today in Hanford, we don't have to wait for someone else to tell us what the righteous thing to do is, right? We're to go and search it out ourselves in the living word and then go God's way. Verse 30, so they were sent off and went down to Antioch and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. The way it's written gives us the impression that there were no detours, no long way around, no long stops anywhere. The Gentile church was no doubt waiting with great anticipation to hear how this was all gonna shake out. Remember, they were willing to obey, but the personal cost could potentially be very difficult and very great. We commend Judas and Silas here. Earlier, we were told that they were revered leading men in Jerusalem, but what do we see? They were willing to be just letter carriers. I like that. They weren't promised any position of importance in Antioch. They weren't going to receive some prestigious award or honorary degree or anything like that. They were just delivering the mail so that these strangers might be kept free in grace. And so that's a wonderful humility. Verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This was an authoritative epistle they were reading, but it filled them with joy As Christians sent to proclaim truth, let's never forget that we are going out with good news. It's good news. 
It has been given to instruct and encourage us, telling us of our freedoms in Christ, our responsibilities to him and to our brothers and sisters and to this world, but it's all very good news. The good news of grace and transformation and salvation. The good news that God has stepped down into this world to deal with sin and death once and for all and that he can make all things new. God who can bring beauty from ashes and revolutionize not just a life or two, but whole communities and whole generations by his power. And so as you go out, uh, preach good news. Verse 32, both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. Of course, their prophecy agreed with the written word. The same litmus should be used today when people Uh, speak a word of prophecy. We can avoid many missteps and burdens using that simple test. Verse 33, after spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. We see sort of a likeness and a cooperation and a similarity. These two churches, Antioch and Jerusalem, were in some ways very, very different, and yet we see them filled and guided by the Holy Spirit And that brings unity. They were brothers, you're brothers. We're all brothers. We're all a family. And just as the 11 and the elders had sent out Judas and Silas from Jerusalem, uh, so those in Antioch were now, now we're sending them back to you. We're all brethren together. We don't know how long they stayed. Some think it could have been a whole year, but however long it was, it was long enough for Silas to make a great impression on the apostle Paul. He would become a faithful traveling companion on his next missionary journey. Now, if you're reading in the NLT, the ESV, the NIV, or the CSB like I am, verse 34 is omitted. In the NSB, it'll be bracketed for you. The New King James and the King James, you'll probably have a note in the margin saying that verse 34 is not found in some manuscripts. What's up with that? Uh, It's that it's not found in some manuscripts. (laughs) That's the deal. And so Bible scholars argue about this sort of thing. Some scholars think that it was at some point added as a marginal note by a scribe or, or somebody altogether, the argument is inconclusive. Luckily, of course, you know, we can trust in the veracity of the scriptures. Verse 34 contains uh, some information that is not consequential when it comes to anything like doctrine. Uh, Here's how it reads in the New King James. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And then we have verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. There was a great teaching ministry in Antioch. We're told that there were many others there doing this godly work. That work is, first and foremost, the planting of seed, right? That's the work of the, of the Christian life and the Christian church is to go through the world and plant seed so that we might make disciples. Sowers have to go out to sow. And we're told that the seed is the word of God and that we are sent to scatter all over the earth so that receptive hearts might take it in, believe, and be saved. That is our most essential business. There are other things we can and should be doing, but listen, if you're a farmer, the most important thing you do is plant. If all you do is cultivate, or if all you do is hedge, or if all you do is... At some point, you have to plant seed. If you don't ever plant seed, you're not a farmer, right? That's the idea. And so lots of things are happening, can happen, but the teaching of God's word is primary and essential and of such great importance it can never be discounted. Psalm 68, 11 says it this way, the Lord gives the word and a great army brings the good news. I love that. That's us, a band of brothers sent out to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus by grace through faith, bringing liberation to a world trapped and desperate. And so let's ride in and save who we can 
in the grace of God. Amen?